Welcome everyone. Today's episode is about culture. We have founder and CEO of Culture Gene, Bretton Putter. Not only is he an, an investor and longtime friend of Seed Camps, but he is a very experienced executive search firm specialist. He did 16 years as managing director of a, a firm here in, in the UK. And he has placed tons of candidates into big companies and has a lot of experience about what it takes to succeed in a company in retaining top talent. Welcome, Brett. Carlos, thanks. It's great to be here. So as uh, we generally like to start off, there's a little bit of background about you. And what's interesting is how the book that we're going to be talking about today might be based on a lot of that experience that you had as uh, an executive search headhunter. And... I want to explore that part of your life a little bit more without just falling into the temptation about talking about your book prematurely. So let's start off with numbers. How many placements do you reckon you did during your time? Personally, I probably did 160 to 200 over 16 years and was involved in about 400 searches all in. Yeah, that seems like a lot. It's a lot of interviewing. I, I did a rough back of the envelope calculation. It's probably about 5,000 interviews. Jesus. And how long, just for people who have never sort of spoken with a head under somebody who has searched for him, how long is a search? Like, is that a three-month, a one-month, a week process, a year process? Same idea. I'd say it's, it's a three-month process that, that can extend really depending on the complexities, locations, etc. But three months is what we would uh, tell the clients to expect. Great. Well, with that amount of time, you really don't want to waste your time. You really don't want to pick customers who are going to waste your time or perhaps go nowhere. So what were the early signs that you would look out for with clients that you might be working with that they're going to waste your time that you shouldn't have been working with them? There were a couple. One was just their listenability, their ability to listen and interact on a way that you wanted to know that the client was open to the reality often of the, the market. So the client would come to you and say, I want somebody who can walk on water and turn it into wine. And you go, okay, well, we can probably find the walk on water bit, but the wine bit, probably not. And that was one of the areas where it would definitely put up a red flag because you can't find, always find the perfect, perfect, perfect candidate. You've got to be flexible. And the second one was where potential client was, came across as disrespectful. It just didn't really communicate well. You didn't really get a good feeling about them. And that was just something that I wanted to work with people who I enjoyed working with. And I still do. You know, you want to work with people who you're going to, you can have a beer with rather than think, Oh my God, I feel uncomfortable in their presence. Mm. So if we cut those people out from the ones that, um, that you've worked with and we say, just focus on the placements that you did do. What was the biggest factor in a successful placement of a candidate? So assuming, of course, all these people that you were working with were people that you liked working with, that was very clear what they wanted, presumably not all of them ended up in success. That's why you said 5,000 or so searches, even though interviews, you know, interviews, interviews, rather, whereas only 200 successful placements. What was the biggest factor in the successful placement of those candidates? The biggest factor was the... Hiring manager, the CEO, whoever it was, their, their ability to understand that it was a combination of factors. It wasn't just skills and experience that, 
that you needed to be looking for. You needed to be, you needed to understand really what was it about your company um, that was unique and different and what were you then communicating to the candidates so that they would understand why they should work at this company. So, you know, it's the salary, the technology, the clients, these are all important things, but there are other factors over and above that, that, that people want to know they're working for, you know, there's more to life than earning a good, a good paycheck. Yeah. And that more to life is probably the foundation for the book, which we'll get into shortly. Very, very much so. Yes. And what was, you know, we talked a little bit about the kind of people you did not want to work with. And then we all talked about the, the good placements. What were the things that companies did wrong in searches period? Like the ones that didn't materialize but that were not necessarily, so it's kind of like this middle ground, right? Like the first question was around the people you didn't want to work with. The second question was the ones that you did want to work with and you had successful placements. But the ones that were in the middle, what was it? Was it that from the point of view of as a, as a firm hired to do something, you didn't have enough direction from the customer? You didn't have something else, a different set of tools by which you could make a better um, candidate search? Was it timing? Was it budget? What were the factors that led to the failure points between the 200 successful ones and the 5,000 interviews? So the, just, so this, this is going to sound a little bit, um, arrogant or, um, but we, we really, because most of our clients that we worked with were high growth, early stage companies, you couldn't not really succeed. Um, so we would go to the ends of the earth to, to, to make a success happen. The situations where they did, where we didn't succeed was around where a client thought, you know, they, 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 based on where their business was, they said, we need X. And then it turned out that actually they needed not X, they needed Y. They, something was different. So they may, you know, they, they, they may have thought because quite early stage businesses, they don't know exactly what they need. Um, at certain times and they thought, okay, we need marketing or we need, we need this type, mm-hmm. type of salesperson. And then it turns out during the process of the search, the interaction with you and the client, you realize actually what we're looking for is the wrong thing. Yeah. We need to go back to the drawing board a little bit. So that did happen. Mm-hmm. That did happen a fair amount. And, and la- that- lack of awareness of, of the, the total strategy. As a, as a constant, it was a, it was very vague and, and that ambiguity led to believing that you wanted this and then later it became that and then you, the, the, the search ended up failing because you, you didn't know what you wanted. Exactly. And to be fair, you know, there are circumstances change in, in startups really quickly. So, you know, you're looking for X and then the business changes and they don't pivot necessarily, but there is some sort of a, a change in the business and then all of a sudden what you're looking for is wrong. So not always this, the lack of strategy, but that was also part of it, definitely. Okay. And that begs one last question on, on this sort of theme of searches and placements and, and talent before we move on to the culture bit and your book. A lot of companies now are starting to bring on internal heads of talent roles. And with the speed at the startups work at the moment, is it a smarter move to optimize around finding a head of talent internally or is it still a, a, a type of, um, is, is it still wise for a company to engage with executive search firms early on? Um, or is the head of talent really replacing that need because it, it more nimble to, to change of how the company is. And plus that head of talent is 
embedded in the company and therefore has visibility on these changes and how they're evolving a lot more quickly than an executive search firm would. Yeah, so we're seeing, um, I'm seeing head of talents go in with various mandates. If a company is going from 100 to 200 employees in the next 12 months, the head of talent is going is, is literally going to go in and say, okay, I need to use these search firms, these recruiters, these uh, talent people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're going to they're gonna essentially come in and solve the solution but not do it themselves. In other circumstances, the head of talent may well do the the search or the recruitment work. So it really, it really depends. I highly recommend the earlier the better. I think for if, which one? For the search firm or for the head no, of talent? For the head of talent. Okay. So if if you're at twenty and you're about to take off and you're about to scale, you know, even if you think you're about to, you, if you look at the, the the companies that are doing it well, they bring somebody in. They bring somebody in on the head of talent side really mm-hmm. early. My recommendation is not to use anybody if you mm-hmm. can if you can help it. Yeah. You know, you go to a, a search firm because they are able to find people you can't. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day. Yeah. Just, just for the sake of those that are wondering what the head of talent is, if you had to define that role or if you were the boss of someone whose title was head of talent, what would be the core responsibilities of the head of talent? This also has its nuances. Um, you get, you get some, some startups that need quite a bit of HR structure. Mm. You get some startups that don't need that. They need the people side. So... Um, I would say now a head of talent is probably more towards the people, talent acquisition, culture, culture development, and some HR and systems piece, you know, mm-hmm. bringing that, bringing a bit of discipline to that, mm-hmm. but way more leaning towards the ability to build a team quickly, bring the, 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 the talent piece in mm-hmm. uh, effectively and um, bring the culture piece in as well. Mm. So moving on to the book. The book is called Culture Decks Decoded, Transform Your Culture into a Visible, Conscious, and Tangible Asset. This book is probably one of the coolest things I've seen because it's rare that you take other people's decks or or intellectual property and you dissect it down and analyze it and then see what the core attributes that define the best companies have. So I really liked the fact that this wasn't just your ideas, it was analysis of other people's ideas to help you understand and make sense of it, right? And so... And it's a very unique and, and very easy to, to get book because you're basically forcing the reader to deduce a lot of these uh, points that you were making. But what made you write this book? Was it, was it the pain in, in dealing with, with customers in your exec search firm days? Or was it you just saw something that you just wanted to share? What, what was the genesis of it? So the genesis of the book is actually, well, first of all, the, the, the book is the result of failure. Not complete failure, but a, a moment of failure. So I actually started when I realized that company culture is the missing piece of the puzzle. It happened about four years ago now. I decided to start really digging into culture. So I started interviewing CEOs of high growth companies and I started really reviewing, researching everything I could about, about company culture and who was doing it well, who wasn't. And I started writing the first book called The Culture Gene, which is actually taking the content from the blogs and turning the content into a uh, essentially a culture management piece. And I hit the wall. I had I hit writer's block with mm-hmm. that book because I'd written the blogs and then uh, blogs and then wrote wrote the book, and I just couldn't write it anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't see the words of the trees. Mm-hmm. So 
um, I decided to write an ebook, a 20 page ebook as a marketing tool uh, about Culture Dex. And the reason for that is I'd written a blog about the top Culture Dex mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. And that kept, you know, it's, it's the most read of my articles on Medium, the most read of my blogs. And it just, just, it just has a life of its own, really. And, um, I thought there was something here. And as I started writing the ebook, it just got more and more interesting. And I got deeper and deeper in it. And, that's the, and that then turned into Culture Dex Decoded. It was sort of a, okay, well, then I'll write it. And the great thing about it is going, and now going back to the second book, the first book, which is now the second book, it's almost cleared the cache in my head mm-hmm. and enabled me to, to, to write it again. But yeah, it was essentially, I had, because I'd looked at all these decks, I realized that you can, you can look at 125 pages of Netflix, this is deck, and some of those slides really resonate with me and others don't. And the same with HubSpot, mm-hmm. Hootsuite or Zappos or LinkedIn. And that was, you know, I, I thought there must be something here that I could sort of, I could extract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, that's actually very valuable because um, having your experienced eyes to help the reader understand what to see or what not to see is part of what makes this book charming. But one of the things that I wanted to get into is the structure of the book. The structure of the book is quite unique. The chapters of the book follow a flow that is on the back cover, which I'm going to read some of them, but then maybe you can walk us through. And it's within that sort of structure of taxonomy that you then dissect the decks themselves. So the first one is culture, the next one's mission, then the next one's vision, history, values. And I'm not going to read them all, but I'll let you walk us through the ones that you want to highlight. But when did you realize and when did you figure out that there was a flow here and, and, and the components of it. And that, that seems to be the foundation upon which you analyzed and decoded these culture decks. Walk us through that process and, and the steps that came to that. So everything starts with the, with the values and the values of a, of a business are the core foundation. But a lot of companies are mission driven or vision driven, even before the values are defined. So that's where the that's where the mission vision came in first, and then the values from there. And basically, I was looking at how do what are the similarities that I can see in you know if you if you picture me looking at a sixty or eighty decks and you know at, at the same time, what are the similarities that I can see in these decks that um, shine through? What are they talking about that seems to be important to a lot of these companies? And what do I think is important based on my research? And so I, I just started collecting all of the slides. You know, I've got, I've got this huge collection of images of slides that, that I had on my walls at, at home going, okay, that goes there, that goes there. And, and just slowly started to piece it together. The, the, the culture, the way I define culture is essentially the way we work around here. And so the way we work around here covers a lot of, a, a lot of interesting elements and, um, and the, a lot of interesting parts of a business. So I knew that had to be in because different companies work uniquely. You know, there's no, the, all the cult- cultures look the same. They sound the same. You know, the words sound the same, but there's no culture that's the same. You know, it's like our fingerprints. Yeah. And so I, that, that was where I, I needed, to, I could see similarities and started to pick those out. And then I, I felt that if you were going to read this and you were working on a deck, you would have to be able to flick back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, what did we say there? What did they say there? And make it just easy to read. 
Okay. And so the with with values as a starting point, you then took all the attributes that you saw that they had and started building out this map. Yeah. And and maybe just for the sake of, of the listener who might not have the book in front of them, I'll read a few other ones, which you know I wouldn't have necessarily thought of would be part of a, a culture deck. And maybe you can walk us through what a culture deck is, maybe the definition of a culture deck now that you've seen all these culture decks. But, you know, ideas include talent, transparency, feedback, how to deal with failure, how to onboard employees, what are, you know, the benefits that you get. Uh, these are all things that you might have not considered to include in a culture deck, but um, possibly it's because you didn't know that, you know, other companies were doing that. So what is a culture deck? Is there a standard? Is there... There's, there's no standard. There is the granddaddy of culture decks, which is the Netflix culture deck. Um, Reed Hastings, the CEO, decided that he'd had enough of reading it out to on new, you know, while he was onboarding new employees, so he put it online. And he didn't expect, I don't think, for it to become as important as it did. It was really just a tool for potential employees to read and understand this is our culture and for current employees to really understand, yeah, this, you know, this is what we stand for and this is what we're going to live by. Mm. And the really with the Netflix document going out, everybody, well, lots of other companies have followed that and, and created their own unique um, culture deck. So a culture deck or a culture code or a culture manifesto is really a um, taking what's an implicit agreement which is when you join a company, we kind of have this agreement that we've discussed how things work here and you feel that, and I feel that you could work in this company. Um, so we're making that explicit. We essentially saying, this is what we expect from you. This is what you can expect from us. And this is basically how we work here. And if you go to, if you look at the first net Netflix, the original deck that was play, you know put up on in two thousand and nine, it's really a brilliant document in terms of going into detail. You know they talk about paying above market rates, and the next slide recommends that employees go for interviews at the competition. Okay, not direct competition, but go for other interviews. And if if for the same role you would be paid twenty percent more, they want to know about it because they don't want you to worry about money. They will cover that. It's just a really interesting way of looking at it. Then you've got different, you know, different companies are now putting across different, different things in their decks. So it's a, it's an agreement and it's a very good, it's a very effective recruiting tool, especially in Netflix's case, 18 million people have read it. Mm. And now you've got the, the ability to get candidates to self-select in or self-select out before they even come through the door. You're not wasting time. You, they're able to question you on this, mm. on your culture. So it's, it's really a means of attracting, retaining talent and then just setting the foundations for how the business works. Mm. So there's a quote that I, I got from one of our mutual friends that he refers to, in this case, marketing, but I'm going to use, I'm going to borrow it and use it for the, for the purposes of discussing culture. It's either that people do it poorly either because it's the easiest thing to do and they just don't give it enough time or it's because it's the hardest thing to do and they don't exactly know how to do it. And we've been jumping around a little bit here. You know, I mentioned some of the attributes of your flow include things like how to deal with failure, how to onboard employees, how to deal with employee benefits. 
And those things sometimes could be attributable as things that go in an employee handbook, not necessarily in a culture deck. And then when we're talking about this idea of culture deck, we're talking about implicit agreements and we're talking about how people get along. And those things could be emotional, perhaps like uh, uh, elements of, of more of a micro society, but not necessarily the details of how to execute that, right? The, mm-hmm. Sort of like a, the values of the U.S. versus like the legal structure of the U.S., which would be more employee handbook. So how do you know when you're overreaching on on exploring a culture deck, when you're exploring building out your culture, defining it between the core elements that are necessary and then all these other things which, you know, you could spend hours and, and waste some time really dealing with prematurely when, in fact, you know, you're just three, four, four people, five people. And, yes, you need to hire, but those elements are not for now. They're for, like, when you're 100 or when you're 50 or when you're 20. How do you define that? How do you delineate that? It, I think it's up to the, the business and where the business is at and what the business is seeing surface. So, for example, if I, I recommend a culture deck starts with vision, mission, and values, and that's not really a deck; it's just a one. You know, it's one page on your on your website. Mm-hmm. And then, as you as you start to realize what's important to you, you can start to discuss that and mm-hmm. think, okay, is this does this differentiate us? Culture is essentially what you do different. Mm -hmm. It's not what you do the same as everybody else. Mm -hmm. It's what your company does that's different and unique and Mm -hmm. what makes it stand out. Mm -hmm. So although a lot of the decks and a lot of the the cultures look the same, Mm -hmm. if you dig into the way the company operates, they're very different. Okay. So when you say employee benefits, you're not saying fill in the gap in your culture deck, this thing called employee benefits. Instead, you're saying as the, the idea of employee benefits starts surfacing naturally and organically as part of the culture, that just happens to be a benefit that you might later categorize. Exactly. In the case of employee benefits, employees are going to start asking for them at some stage. Exactly. And that's when you codify it and that's when you put it into your, into your deck if you want to. This is, this is a, a template mm. of everything that you could possibly, well, not everything, but mm. a lot of what you could possibly put into a deck. Mm. You don't have to do it all by any stretch of the imagination, but as, as your team start to talk about it or as you start to sense its importance, you can consider including it or not. Mm. Well, I want to explore something that you've, been, you've brought up a couple times now, this idea that uh, mission, vision, values are the core of where this all starts. I'm going to add another one, which you don't use specifically, but other people use when they talk about this part of of culture, which is purpose. Sometimes people use them interchangeably, and that's part of the problem. A lot of these words are inadvertently used quite interchangeably, Mm. and they probably shouldn't be. Like the difference between a vision and a mission from our chats with mutual friends, they're not the same, right? And culture is part of the reason why it could be too easy or too hard is very much because definitions are actually part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Help us understand, in your mind, what the differences are between mission, vision, purpose, and values. Okay, so this is is an area where there is gray. Um, Some companies decide to be mission-driven, no vision. Some companies decide to be purpose-driven. No vision or vision or mission. And it really depends on the company. If that's what works for you and that gets your people psyched up and motivated, that's great. The difference in my, from my perspective is 
The vision is where we're going to be assuming everything goes absolutely tickety-boo and perfectly. Where we'll be in five years? What will we be? What would we have changed in five years' time um, if everything went perfectly? The mission is what are we going to do to get there on a day-to-day basis? So this is what we do on a day-to-day basis to get where we want to be in five years, assuming everything goes correctly, and that's how we could change the world. The values are the underlying descriptions of your behaviors. So the values are either phrases or or short phrases or, or words, but essentially they are associated with the way you behave. So you look at if you way you the way you behave then connects into the mission because that's what you're going to do on a daily basis, which connects into the vision because that's where you're going to be in the future. The purpose, I see the purpose and the vision slightly interchangeable. And I see, um, uh, I can't remember if it was Hewlett or Packard, but one of them described purpose as being something that's almost unachievable. A vision I see as, as, in, as achievable, but a purpose is not. So culture gene, the purpose of culture gene is to change the culture of business globally. The reason for that is I see that as the missing link. Culture is the missing link and, and businesses, businesses don't do it very well for the most part. Trying to change it globally is, you know, it's an impossible task. But it's something worth striving to do, and it drives the team on. Mm. That's actually very helpful and and a good way to think about it. And when 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 you see companies struggling through this process, what is the first three steps that you recommend they take to really nail down those three four things? If the company is naturally mission or vision driven, explore that. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's not, that's fine. But always, always focus on the values mm-hmm. because the values the values are the foundation. The values are the DNA. The important thing to remember with the values is they are not. They don't have to be perfect in the beginning. Get them down on paper. Explore what what they mean in terms of the behaviors associated with them. So to give you an example, if the value is teamwork, that is a group of people working together with a common goal, communicating well. Mm-hmm. That could be one of the expected behaviors. Mm-hmm. Another expected behavior could be the team always comes first. We're talking about how we interpret and how based on those interpretations, how we would behave mm-hmm. that word. The big mistake that companies make is they write the values up on the wall and they say, okay, you know, plug them up on the wall, print them out. And they say, okay, go and live them. But values are open to interpretation. Which one is it in teamwork? Is it the team always comes first or is it us collaborating? And depending on my perspective and my interpretation, I will take, I will take a different decision to the other people. So the first thing to do is, A, get the values down. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be funky. Just get get basic words down and then explore the expected behaviors and then start to iterate it, iterate it over time. Mm. And so those, those define their, like, so the flow that you're suggesting is values, then mission. And sure, surely the company would have probably not started if it didn't have a vision of where it wants to be. 
Yeah. And that's how they would link up with you all. Exactly. So, so values, I see the values as the behaviors yeah. that we will take to achieve the daily or weekly mission, yeah. which will achieve the five-year vision or the... Yeah. People bring to conversations all sorts of rubbish. You know, they bring misconceptions. They bring all sorts of assumptions. What are the typical assumptions that you see team members or co-founders bring to a conversation when the topic of culture comes up? What are the misconceptions of culture? On a high level, uh, people think that culture is not a critical element of their business. It's uh, something we can do later or something that we can pause. And it's this fluffy thing. So that's the first one on a high level. On a more day-to-day, nitty-gritty in the weeds point of view, people think culture is going for drinks, table tennis, and perks. That's not what culture is. Mm. You know, culture is everything. It's the way. It's the norms, the behaviors, the assumptions, the mission, the vision, the values, the the habits that we develop. The way I, I like to describe culture in startups is it's the accumulated learning that starts at founder level and then moves through when you develop MVP, product market fit, commercialization, fundraising, growth, scaling. Culture changes at each one of those stages because the way you, the way we work around here when we are five is different to the way we work around here when we are 50, which is different to the way we work around here when we are 250. And so understanding that culture changes means that as the CEO, you actually have to work on knowing where you are in your culture development and culture growth cycle. And you've got to know that your values are still aligned with your culture. Yeah, that makes sense. And it sounds like a perfect segue into one of the questions that we talked about earlier. It's what is the biggest realization you've made after completion of the book? You know, you, you looked at all these decks you saw the things that linked them together. But with most things in life, when you look back 2020 hindsight, you realize that people have missed out on something. Yeah. They didn't include something. What is the thing that you think all these culture decks lack and that you realized after writing the book? I think that the lacking piece of the puzzle is an understanding that culture needs to be managed. And culture needs to be, you can't just tick the box. We've done culture now. Let's get on with it because of the example I gave earlier where the culture changes over time. Um, actually, and if you dig into Netflix, mm-hmm. you can find different versions of their deck on SlideShare. Mm-hmm. And if you look at their website now, you'll actually see that they did have nine values. They now have 10. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that people don't realize is how the, the, the values impact, the, the really impact the behaviors of a company. They think, okay, we've written this here. Let's, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. But if you, if, you, if, you, if you look at some of the, the companies that have flourished or not, you can see the ones that have not flourished where, where, where the challenges came from in their early stage values mm-hmm. that weren't really managed properly. Mm-hmm. So it's all about management. And if I'm... You know, if, if I'm successful in what I'm doing in the next five or ten years, culture development will become a disciplined function in the same way that sales and marketing and engineering are. Mm. If you look at the average employee in a company that you would argue has a good enough culture, meaning um, all its elements have been somewhat sorted out, maybe categorized, maybe discussed, 
Do you think that the average employee would be able to articulate a company's vision, mission, purpose, culture as a whole? Do you think that that is the level of expectation that you know you've done it right? Or do you think that it's that they, they act it out even if it's not necessarily a memorized thing? So, first of all, there's no such thing as a good or bad culture or a right or wrong culture. Okay. Um, the a, a good is good is dependent on where I am. So if if I'm born, the example I like to use is if I'm born into the mafia, shooting somebody in the kneecaps is actually the right way to do things, mm. and it's the way we do things around here, and it mm. strengthens our culture. They can't run away from you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. They, but if you're not born into the mafia, you think that's appalling, especially if you're the person who shot in the kneecaps. Mm. Um, so good or bad is relevant to the context of where you are and whether you you associate with the with the values and the mission and the vision of the company or the the organization. So culture is either strong or weak. Strong cultures have their their, their culture is embedded mm-hmm. into the organization. So reward and recognition is 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 included. What's measured and controlled? Um, how the business hires, fires, and promotes, how the business encourages learning and development, um, what the business invests in and allocates funds are all considered against the values and the mission and the vision. Decisions are taken against the values of the business. So it becomes naturally embedded and ingrained. So in a strong culture, Mm -hmm. that will be the case. In less strong and less strong and weak cultures, that will be less and less so. So the reason I was asking that question is if I bring it back to the very beginning of our chat about searches that went wrong, the people that came to you to find employees, you know, I find that if I understood you correctly, you're saying that if a culture is strong, it will be within the DNA of the employee. It will be within the DNA of the person who approached Brett, the, the headhunter for a search and it won't necessarily be something that they explicitly articulate to you because they have memorized, this is our vision, this is our purpose, this is our mission. Rather, they personify it, and therefore you, as a headhunter, would understand it and find the right person that would match that culture. But in a weak, it sounds like in a weak culture, that would be poorly communicated to you, and therefore you would start a search, perhaps looking for somebody who isn't going to be a good fit. Walk us through how you would now look back at your headhunter days and categorizing the people, the placements that went really well and the ones that didn't go so well based upon what you can remember of the culture of the person who was hiring you? So this is a great question because it's the reason I'm sitting here talking to you about culture. Hmm. About four years ago, I worked with four clients where the CEOs had a very clear understanding of the culture of the business and specifically the values of the business. And I was lucky enough to work with all three, almost back to back, which meant that I noticed their outcome was like, wow. And, and so basically what happened is the CEO came to me and said, we want you to find these skills, these capabilities, this experience, this knowledge, this background, and a fit with our values. And I, I understood, they communicated the values and explained it to me, explained their culture. And... I had to work a little harder, to be honest, to find those candidates because I was now not just looking for the, the, the skills and experience. But when the actual interview process happened, it was it was like it just clicked. Mm. You could see 
the candidate that was just the right values fit oh. for the company. And that what that so that was about you know the, the, that was about year fourteen mm-hmm. of my of of running the firm, and so for the next two years I spent a lot more time understanding the values, and that's that's where it got better and better and better. I think I was I was very lucky in that I have I do have a good sense of intuition for people, so I was possibly sensing values prior to that. I was getting a sense of. The, what the client wanted and then could feel this in the candidate. But then I actually codified it. And the problem is only one out of 10 high growth startup companies have defined their culture mm. and done a decent job of it. The other nine are walking around blind, really. And so what I would do is when I sit down with the CEO, sit down with a hiring manager, I have, I have a list of a hundred values and I give them this list and say, choose 10, please. Mm-hmm. And then we'd, dis- we'd spend more time discussing the values than the role. Because a VP engineering, look, there's a, there are obviously tweaks here and there, but a VP engineering is a VP engineering. And if you've done a bunch of searches, you know mm. what a VP engineering is. But the values were critical. So we'd spend time going through, why did you choose that value? What's important to you? Why is that important to you? And it wasn't a perfect solution, but it gave me a better context within which to go and find these candidates. Yeah. So that's really how I came about it. And then I started doing the interviews, understanding, you know, what is it that makes great companies do this and why? Mm. We, we always like to uh, ask a, a few other crazy fun questions. Um, if you could be a superhero with any power, what would it be? Werewolf. And why? Werewolf. Yeah. Really, why was that? It's going to be a really embarrassing answer. I always liked his hairstyle. Oh, really? <laughs> and his claws were pretty effective too. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, no, I... I um, I really, I was a big X-Men fan, a uh, comic fan when I was a kid, and I just liked his attitude. He had, he, he had a, yeah. a, quite an ag- aggressive approach to things, which I guess matched mine. Yeah, no, I can see that. I, I see where you look like Wolverine. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. There's a slight resemblance. You, There's no Hugh Jackman in me. <laughs> yeah, you need, you need the, you, yeah, you need the, the chops on the side a little bit more. Um, if we look back, this, this is one of my favorite questions, just because it gives you insights into especially on the subject of culture. When, when you look back in history, we look at slavery, we think, oh my God, how did we let that happen? If we look into the future 50 years from now and we look back to 2019, what we'll be looking at and thinking, how did we let this happen? Other than Brexit, you're not allowed to say Brexit. But like, how else did, did we let this specific thing happen? What would it be? I actually think it's going to be, it'll be company culture. We'll look back at, at how companies are run now and think that is so the dark ages. It's, mm. it's, it's amazing how 99% of companies are run the way they are. And what do you think that is? Do you think that's like the vestiges of the early industrial age? Yeah, we're, we're coming out of that. So um, you and I have discussed this before, but there, uh, there's a book called An Everyone Culture that I highly recommend, which describes deliver, deliberately developmental organizations. And, you know, if you look at how these, and I've managed to spend time in, in, in one of these and really understand how they work, but if you look at how DDOs or deliberately developmental organizations work, it is, it is unbelievably powerful for the individuals in those companies. They grow immensely and they learn, you know, it's, it's, it's a completely different scale. Mm-hmm. So I do think we'll look back and go, wow, did we really, did we, you know, did we really allow companies to be run like that? It almost should be against the law. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there you go. You're going to have to read the book and learn what you should do. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Carlos, great to be on there. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.